Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast in the week of February 19th, 2023, Transfiguration Sunday. Our gospel text this week is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brought them to the top of a very high mountain. He was transformed in front of them, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter reacted to all of this by saying to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I'll make three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, look, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I dearly love. I am pleased with him. Listen to him. Hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces, filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When he looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anybody about the vision until the human one is raised from the dead. All right, the word of the Lord. Okay, so I initially titled this podcast, Nothing Hidden. But as I began to write and reflect more on the transfiguration, I don't know if a more appropriate title is would be actually everything is hidden. And so the initial title, Nothing Hidden, is trying to combat this idea that there is a kind of revelation given on a mountaintop. So in this particular text, we have Moses and Elijah representing the law and the prophets who have also had revelations on mountains. So here, Matthew and the other synoptic gospel writers are following this motif. And I've said about this text before in years past that this paradigm is used literally or metaphorically to ingrain this concept that there is a kind of hidden knowledge or secret knowledge that is given by God to holy people. And we know that this pattern has played out for centuries in Christianity, and it's woven throughout modern American Christianity and evangelicalism and undoubtedly uh, charismatic circles. But in contrast, um, like at Mission Hills, we really try to remind each other that um, we do not preach as if Kelly or I or anyone else offering reflections for that matter has some kind of message from God that we're bringing down from the mountain. Instead, we're trying to be honest about our experience of Christian spirituality, the Bible, our education, and what's happening in the world around us, and how we might tenderly navigate our world world together with with love. Uh, I've spoken before that the trajectory of Christian spirituality and what I particularly see in this text um, is a downward trajectory um, in every sense of the word. Uh, From the mountain through suffering, uh, this text is a precursor to um, Jesus' way to the cross, so we'll we'll talk about that during the season of Lent. But I've used the interpretive lens that this text reveals that the point is that nothing is hidden on the mountaintop, but that life is about being present with those who are suffering and struggling to overcome the oppression, uh, the oppression and violence of, of empire. But perhaps there's also another interpretive lens that we can use and talk about on Sunday uh, that is the other side of the coin of nothing hidden, which is everything is hidden. 
if you haven't seen the news this week, or if you have seen the news uh, this week in American Christian circles, I would I wouldn't blame you if you if you hadn't. Uh, You've probably heard uh, about the Asbury revival at Asbury University in Kentucky. Essentially, the story is that students began a chapel service the Wednesday before last, and it still hasn't ended. This definitely caught the attention of the American Christian landscape, and of course, uh, revival in many circles, evangelical or otherwise, is a significant topic, desire, I don't know. but as a result, Asbury, this Asbury revival has now created several revivals. I'm using air quotes when I say that around the country. Um, and as a result, students uh, at Asbury have been interviewed on Fox News and a variety of Christian news networks. And I don't want to comment significantly here on the specifics of Asbury. Uh, I try, n- <laughs> I try not to follow that as much, uh, that type of stuff as much as I can. Uh, but I think revival in general is an interesting is an interesting topic to discuss and something in almost seven years at Mission Hills I we have never talked about um, and but I think it has interesting parallels uh, theologically with stories and interpretations and interpretive lenses uh, to how people approach uh, texts like the Transfiguration and for oh so many reasons revivals in my opinion, are inherently theologically problematic in every way, shape, and form, uh, no matter how sincere the, the group of participants are, um, which I do think that most people are very, very sincere, but that, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. In revival, uh, just to go through a few, um, the very theological premise creates an in-group and an out-group to start off. Uh, there are those part of the revival and then those that are not part of the revival, those having an experience with God, uh, being called by the Spirit, etc., and those who are not, those who hear the Spirit, feel the Spirit, and those who do not. Theologically, revivals say uh, that God is here, uh, which inherently implies that God is at the very least more available or more present in one location over other locations. Okay, uh, at revivals, uh, there is, I think, wrongly, theologically, uh, a wrongly held desire for the extraordinary or, or supernatural to, to occur, something that can't be explained to validate the experience, uh, that there's uh, something that doesn't happen every day or simply to anyone. You, there needs to be a kind of uh, proof of sincerity, holiness, something um, that can serve as a proof or validation of faith or God's favor on the particular in-group or specific location. Along with the experience of revival comes a myriad of pressures um, and anxiety to then prove the validity or to prove a certain kind of outcome, however you want to define that, in order to externalize the experience as real or somehow from God, which then implies that other life experiences are uh, not of God, or at least not in the same way. Uh, This leads to to so many issues uh, that we don't even have time to go through um, the the list, and I'm sure you have experienced um, something along these lines that are also theologically problematic, but they lead to Revivals inherently lead to coercion, anxiety, shame, um, 
But I want to focus on how these theologies are, are really embedded uh, within all of us, whether or not you've been a part of something that would even consider itself a revival, or you are thinking to yourself, I've never been, I've never even attended a charismatic church, Ryan, what are you, what are you talking about? Uh, they're so ingrained in the American Christian consciousness that I, I don't think any of us are immune to it, whether you grew up Catholic or Baptist like me or non-denominational. Um, American consciousness and culture is really shaped by, well, several historical periods, all of which um, have connections to revivals, but we won't go into the history there. Um, but just even for me, speaking for myself, as I was, I was thinking about this this week, you know, I, I went to uh, several church camps when I was in high school uh, I, that were certainly wouldn't consider themselves uh, charismatic or would even consider themselves revivals. I don't even remember that word uh, specifically being used in a variety of contexts, even though it probably probably was, and I just probably don't remember. Uh, but even certain things like <laughs> I led a see you at the poll rally when I was in high school. Uh, that is its own kind of uh, revival movement. You're doing something in a particular place and in praying or asking for there to be uh, a movement of some kind for, for God to move in other you know, spheres of life. Uh, just incredibly theologically uh, problematic. But this even happens at Mission Hills and has happened uh, for several years, uh, ever since I've started at Mission Hills. So I've had many progressive and deconstructive Christians uh, in the last seven years who wouldn't consider themselves charismatic or evangelical say things to me like, uh, Mission Hills, uh, it could be something extraordinary, or I'm waiting for Mission Hills to, to grow or catch on or, or, or become well-known, or uh, you know, I'm waiting to feel something, uh, something at Mission Hills that I think is, all of this taps into a, a really similar desire or hope uh, that is not too far off from this revivalistic uh, thinking, that we need some kind of spiritual validation to feel whole and complete, waiting for something to happen that will be ultimately fulfilling. Um, something, whether that, they would characterize that as something extraordinary, which again is, is incredibly subjective, miraculous, etc., to to essentially feel something that you hear that you that somehow is implied isn't everywhere else. Um, this, as we all know, isn't uh, a desire that's limited to to just Christianity. It's throughout uh, popular culture. It's throughout consumer capitalism. It hinges on a promise that there is a product or experience that will eventually make you feel whole and complete. That will end your desire. But as we know, uh, this pursuit only feeds it. This is why I always say at Mission Hills, uh, we're here in part to disappoint and fail your expectations. That, that is so crucial to, to what uh, I hope we do because I don't want to uh, create spaces at Mission Hills that, um, that libidinally fill this uh, need to, to feel whole and complete or that we're waiting on something to happen, something extraordinary to happen, something experience that will somehow um, satisfy or, you know, validate um, the sort of spiritual path that, uh, that you or, or any of us are on. Okay, so 
back to nothing hidden. And I said nothing is hidden, not in a not in an evangelical way, because it can kind of come across that way, like um, the individualistic spirituality of American Christianity, where like you can read and interpret the Bible for yourself, or you should have individual ex- spiritual experiences that give you um, certain kinds of uh, progressive validation. Of course you can. That's fine. Uh, I mentioned this in the sense that there, uh, nothing is hidden in that there is no man behind the curtain. There is no special hidden revelation. There is no, there's no new book that you could read or class. There's nothing, there's no Mission Hills church service or service project or anything that will ultimately bring you the satisfaction you're looking for, spiritual or otherwise, right? There is no mountaintop. There is no experience that will offer final validation for you, not even Kelly's church camping trip. It won't do it. You will always need something else. You will always need another revival. You will always need another Kelly church camp, another mountain. Um, What I'm trying to say with the nothing is hidden is, uh, I think what Richard Rohr is getting at when he says, uh, everything is Christ-soaked, right? I would say, Everything is sacred. There is no more God here than there is anywhere else. There is no secret on the mountaintop. There's no experience that is finally going to give you the assurance that you're looking for, the validation that you're on the right path or you're genuinely having a spiritual experience. Uh, That's why whenever people talk about revivals and are trying to validate, is this real or is this God? Is this not God? Is this emotionalism? To me, it's all asking the wrong questions. And whether it's revival or trying to talk about the meaning of the transfiguration, I think it's essential that we first break apart some of these theological assumptions and psychological frameworks uh, that we might not even be aware that we still carry at some level. A friend of mine uh, back home in Waco, Texas, uh, named Craig Nash, was offering a thought on revival this week by quoting a line from the songwriter Rich Mullins about how Catholics hold the Virgin Mary in high regard. And he says this, I often thought, you know, people worry with the Catholic thing, uh, revering Mary, and I've thought, well, maybe it's not that they revere Mary too much, maybe it's that all of us revere each other too little. And I thought this was a really interesting insight, and Craig goes on to write, uh, maybe it's not whether people are placing too high a premium on Asbury, but whether we are placing too low of a premium on the place of God and the cup of coffee we are holding in our hands or the friend across the table or world from us or the nap we got to take last Saturday. And I think this is incredibly insightful and something that we we try to always keep at the, the front of our, of our mind and experience at Mission Hills that anything we talk about, we, we are saying uh, there is no one location for the sight of the divine. Um, this is why we're mindful to not be prescriptive or to push a particular worldview, but to see the transfiguration as developmental, communal, and I would say even interreligious, uh, that we all are so interconnected and reliant on each other. And that goes for the whole ecosystem. And I've often mentioned how uh, one of my favorite authors, Kester Bruin, he would even preface his books with, I might be wrong. And this phrase is really important, I think, to the ethos of what I hope to communicate anytime um, that I'm offering my thoughts, is that I think an important understanding of transfiguration, transformation, uh, spiritual development, growth, um, is becoming more comfortable with being wrong. And to me, this 
goes um, counter to the hidden knowledge or revivalist theological uh, mindset or paradigm, because so much of uh, pitfalls of Christian spirituality is bound up in a kind of need to be right, whether that's intellectually or spiritually, that, that validation piece, to be validated on an intellectual level or spiritual level, which is always a moving target. It's always so subjective. Like fundamentalist Christians defend their faith from people that they think are wrong or people that represent their enemy. Progressive Christians uh, often need to, uh, the insurance of some kind of intellectual superiority or political self-righteousness. Like many Bible stories, we often see uh, what we want to see in the text anyway. For some, the transfiguration reveals Jesus' divinity. For others, it validates uh, Jesus in the line of the presence of Moses and Elijah. Uh, I was listening to New Testament professors talk this week, um, defending the transfiguration using other biblical texts, trying to point to how this validates Jesus and the disciples in this text and what that means for the way of the cross, but using the Bible to uh, explain the Bible. To me, that's fine on some level, but it's it also kind of sounds like you're trying to define a word by using the word, uh, to only explain the Bible by using the Bible. But maybe that's just me. Uh, to me, transfiguration signals something to us about transformation and the very mystery of it, the experience of it, the implications of it, that we're acknowledging that transformation has a personal dimension to it and a political dimension to it. Uh, this idea that nothing is hidden, and yet we're actually faced with the real cloud of unknowing, the unknowing of, of our own lives, the unknowing of, of the future with so many uh, really serious uh, global problems, political uh, strife. Uh, the positive transformation we're recognizing can be it could be fast or slow. Um, we've mentioned that throughout the season of Epiphany, that transformation is the primary call of both Jesus and John the Baptist. Change your hearts and lives. Ch change your consciousness. Um, that it is about personal change, but it's also about creating this beloved community that values the dignity of all, of all things because... Um, God is here. God is always here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is within you. Uh, this, this unknowing that we're referencing here, this everything is hidden, the mystery aspect to the transfiguration and allowing that to be. And so the kind of unknowing that I am thinking about here is not to say that if we do these spiritual practices and we read this book, that the light hits just right, that will unlock something and all will be revealed to you kind. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about it just in the basic sense that we are all human who briefly emerge on this planet for less than a cosmic second. And everything is hidden because we're more often wrong than we are right, and that's okay. Now, we don't have to have the answers to the transfiguration because actually no one does. I listened to two New Testament professors talk about, the, talk about it this week, uh, trying to explain it by using the Bible, okay, that even the impulse and desire for us to, uh, to have a certain kind of spiritual experience or even to intellectually square um, something that is ultimately mysterious is 
actually may be an ingrained theological impulse that we can talk about changing, that the beauty of the transfiguration perhaps is simply being present in its mystery. There's a piece of art by Kelly Lattimore on the transfiguration that has uh, the transfiguration as a glitch where everything is indecipherable. And I have it in my office. I'll pass it around this Sunday. And it's interesting to think about it in this way because we associate glitches as not only something as unexpected, but they usually indicate that there's a mistake or uh, some kind of failure. That not only is there their mystery and unknowing, uh, but maybe transformation needs failure, needs mistakes, uh, needs the, the raw materials of what it means to be human, uh, which totally goes against this idea of our need for uh, fulfillment, a certain kind of feeling, blessing, success, uh, whether that be within the context of Christianity or spirituality or simply within the context of American popular culture and consumer culture. And maybe I'll leave it here that, that really after all, uh, we know the way, of, the way of the cross, both uh, personally, politically, for Jesus historically, is ultimately a difficult path to walk. Um, not in a kind of Christian martyrdom complex, um, but it is a is a slow path of, of transformation, development. But we'll talk about more of that uh, as we head into the season of Lent together. So I guess I'll close it there. Um, yeah, I hope to, hope to see you soon. I hope to uh, have a con- good conversation around these topics on, on Sunday. And yeah, we'll close. As, a, as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. And of course, let the mystery be. Amen. Some say once you're gone, you're gone forever. Some say you're gonna come back.